If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of Romans. We are going to be in Romans again tonight. Um, if you remember last week, we talked about um, the, the role that David plays kind of behind the scenes in the first four chapters of Romans. Uh, we, we talked about how the story of David, and particularly the story of David and a sin with Bathsheba, while I don't know that Paul is intentionally organizing the book of Romans to compare or to, to, to parallel that story, it does parallel that story in, in some interesting ways. And if you think about that, it can help you uh, remember the flow of the argument of the first four chapters of Romans. So, so what I mean is after David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, Nathan the prophet comes to him and he tells him this story about a rich man who stole a ewe lamb from a poor man, and he offered it to, for, for a stranger. And the rich man could have used anything of his own. He had everything in the world, but, but instead he took everything from this poor man just because of his greed and his selfishness, and he abused his power to oppress somebody else. And when David hears this, he says the, the man should die, and he should restore fourfold what he has taken. And Nathan the prophet says to David, you are the man. And while David could so clearly see the sin in another, he had failed to realize that that's, that's the very thing that he had been doing. That's what he had done with Uriah. When he stole Bathsheba, he used his selfish greed and power as the king in order to oppress one of his, his subjects. And, and, and so as you read through the story, David sees the sins of another and he condemns that person. But then the prophet turns the story around and David realizes, oh, I'm the one who's been guilty of it all the time. But the story doesn't end there because David is then forgiven of that sin. God forgives him of it. And he uh, writes Psalm 51. The heading of Psalm 51 tells us that this is written in response to David's sin with Bathsheba when Nathan the prophet came to him. And so then you read Psalm 51 and it's this beautiful prayer of repentance and of declaration to, to give allegiance and faithfulness to God after the sins that had so separated and alienated him from God. And so, as you read through the first couple chapters of Romans, that same story plays out, where you have these sins of the Gentiles that are enumerated, and the Jews sit there with their arms folded, and they look and they say, that's so horrible. How could they do such a thing? They deserve to die. In fact, that's, what, that's how Romans 1 ends, by saying those who do these things are worthy of death, and the Jews nod their heads and say amen. And then it's Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, but you, Jews, do the exact same things. How can you judge them when you practice the same things? Oh man, kind of like that you are the man phrase. He, he actually uses that word there in, in, in chapter 2 to say, what about you, oh man, who do the very same things and yet judge those? Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? And, and so then he makes the point that Jews and Gentiles alike, just like David and that rich man in, in the parable, they are united in the sin, so are Jews and Gentiles together. Yet, just like David was forgiven, so can Jews and Gentiles be forgiven, that they are forgiven not based on law. In fact, David wasn't forgiven based on the law, right? David's, I mean, what's, what's the penalty for adultery and, and murder? It's, it's not, it's, it's death. It's a capital crime. And so like, according to the law, David stood condemned, but he was forgiven by the grace of God apart from the law or, or uh, over the law. 
And that's, I think, the point that Paul begins to make. And he actually quotes from Psalm 51 as he begins to make that point, that God is just to do this. Even though people uh, might expect him or think he should judge in other ways, God stands beyond our judgment. And then when you get to, to Romans 4, he actually mentions David by name and quotes another passage that comes from David. And he's, this is the passage. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That kind of sounds like that's exactly what David needed after his sin with Bathsheba. And that's what he received. And then Paul quotes that to talk about what we receive through Jesus himself. And so as you read through the first four chapters of Romans, you can see how it mirrors the story of David and the sin with Bathsheba and all that. And then Paul you know, he, he actually makes it a little bit explicit by mentioning David by name, by quoting Psalm 51, and by quoting other psalms from David, Psalm 32, where David rejoices in the forgiveness that he has. And so whether or not, again, Paul is intentionally thinking about that, either way, I think you can see that, that he is following the same pattern. Well, I think another pattern can help us if we're trying to to commit to memory what the flow of the book of Romans is. I think chapters 5 through 8 can follow another pattern of something you see in the Old Testament. And if we think about it, we can see how it kind of uh, follows this pattern. This uh, is something first I first read uh, while reading a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. Um, but he kind of organizes the book of Romans. And I think he says something interesting, particularly about chapters 5 through 8 and how it's a retelling of the story of Israel, uh, only it's retold in such a way that it is amplified to embrace all humanity. And, and as you do it, I think some things make sense in it. For example, when you get to chapter 8, at the point in the story when, say, Israel would be entering into the promised land, God is giving the land to his, to his people. When you get to chapter 8 of Romans, you have this promise of new creation for all people. Not just one piece of land for one group of people, but new creation itself for all of God's people. And that's kind of the climax of the story. That's where it ends, and that's where this whole thing is going. That's what we're ultimately hoping for. But if you go back to chapter 5, the chapter that we talked about this morning, it starts with Adam. It goes from Adam all the way to new creation. Only in every way the story of Israel and the story that you read in your Old Testament is amplified and, and is, is improved upon by the story that we now live in with Christ. And so instead of the promised land being one bit of land for one people, it's new creation for all people. And instead of our, our representative founding human being the one who brought sin and death into the world, ours is Jesus who brings life and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption into the world. And so it's the story being told with Jesus as the new Adam. And so when you get to like uh, chapter 5, you have this Jesus-Adam parallel, where Jesus is the newer and greater Adam, not of the old world of sin and death, but of new, the new world of, of life and redemption. And then as you read through Genesis, you know, you have Adam, you get to the book of Exodus, and what do you have there? You have slavery and you have death. Uh, you have Pharaoh who has enslaved the Israelites. He's having their children killed. The people are being worked to the bone and worked to death. And their children are literally being killed as a way of, of wiping out this large group of people who has caused fear from this king who's ruthless and, and cruel, this taskmaster. Well, what did God end up doing in the book of Exodus? 
he freed them from slavery so that they would become his people instead of Pharaoh's people. And the climactic moment where you see that transfer take place is through the Red Sea, where Israel leaves behind slavery and death, and they enter into the, the, the covenant with God on the other side. Well, Romans chapter 6 is the chapter on baptism, where it explicitly and repeatedly uses the language of being slaves to sin. And then you are baptized and you become slaves of righteousness or slaves of, of God. And there's this transfer that takes place. So it starts with Adam, but instead of our Adam bringing sin and death, we have a new Adam that brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Then we go from to, into slavery, yet we're freed from slavery, not for a short while uh, from the Egyptians, but from the slavery of sin and death itself that has held us captive. And then you get to chapter 7 of the book of Romans, and what happens next in Israel's story? As they go through the Red Sea, as they're freed from slavery, they go to Mount Sinai, and they receive the law. Well, when you get to chapter 7, it's, that's what it's about. It's about the law. That's where we reach Sinai in our story. Only if you look at like chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And now there's this contrast between the letter that they had at Sinai and the spirit that we now serve in, in Christ. And this climactic law moment is then again transformed in Christ. Yet, as you continue reading Romans 7, you see the struggle that Israel and that Paul and that, that we ourselves continue to face. It's like we, we have this law, they had this law, and yet they, they never lived up to it because even though the law was good, they often were not. And they found themselves not being the people that they were supposed to be. And there's this, this struggle that takes place. And Paul writes about it in, in the first person as, as, as his very own struggle. He says, the very things that I want to do are not the things that I do, and I end up doing the very things that I hate. He says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body? Body of death. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh am serving the law of sin. But therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And even this grapple and struggle with the law is ultimately through Christ. Uh, we're redeemed from it and there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And as you kind of go through the story after discussing the relationship with the law, you think about the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where they were supposed to be led by this cloud, this, this pillar of fire and this cloud, and, and that was supposed to lead them where they were supposed to go. And yet repeatedly, they fell into sin along the way. Well, what Paul will then contrast in chapter 8 is this, this question of who is leading you. Are you being led by the flesh, which is going to lead to death, or led by the Spirit of God? that will lead you to life. And that's actually the language that he uses, like in chapter 8 and verse 14. For we are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. And so the story is being led, and that will lead you into Romans chapter 8, where all creation, the current creation, the Adam's creation, is crying out in bondage, longing for that day of redemption where new creation emerges. And that is the creation of resurrection, where our bodies are redeemed as well, just like, just like Jesus was. And so you have this whole story, only it's a new Adam, a new 
creation and the story of Exodus, the story of law, the story of the wilderness, and all of that is transformed in Christ so that at the end of it, we find ourselves more than conquerors through him that loved us. For neither height nor death nor life nor death nor uh, principality or power or angels, nor things present nor things to come, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, That's how Romans 8 concludes. It's this beautiful story that takes you from a new Adam in a new Eden to overwhelming conquering in the hope of eternal life through our Savior Jesus. And we follow the same pattern of being slaves, being freed from slavery, grappling with the law, but being led by the Spirit to new creation itself. Anyway, you read through those four chapters, you can see the story of Israel kind of writ large in the story that Paul is writing. You see it in a lot of the language and imagery that he uses and in the general flow of the story. So if you're trying to commit Romans to memory, chapters one through four, I think, I think thinking of the story of David and Bathsheba can help you kind of understand the, the logic of that section. And then chapters five through eight, looking at the whole story of Israel and, and comparing that to the story of mankind itself helps us put uh, that into perspective as we, as we move through. But this morning, our lesson was in Romans chapter 5, and that's where we are going to uh, spend the rest of our time in the lesson here. Uh, Romans chapter 5, and there's something that we, we talked about a little bit, and I just talked about it a second ago, this Jesus-Adam parallel. Uh, although more than a parallel, it's probably better thought of as a contrast, because uh, that's, that's the main idea all the way through it, is that Adam is this type of Jesus, and yet the closer you look at them, all of these differences emerge between what Adam did for the world and what Jesus has done for the world. What Adam has done for all those who came after him and what Jesus does for those who come after him. And as you look at this, you begin to see that Jesus is He's the anti-Adam. He is the antidote to what Adam did in this world. And so I want to read through some of this passage and see uh, some of the beauty and of the hope that we have on this side of Jesus, knowing that our Adam is far superior than the one that you read about back there in Genesis chapter 3, who brought sin and death into this world. So uh, this is also a section, as we read through it, and we'll, we'll discuss it briefly, um, that doctrinally has caused, I think, some confusion in the history of Christianity. And uh, there have been debates, you know, about how exactly did the sin of Adam, how did it impact mankind from that point forward? Uh, did, he, did he change something about our nature? Are we born with his sin? Or are we born comp- guilty of his sin? Are we born totally depraved? And depending on which like Christian author you're reading or which denomination or, or uh, Christian uh, theology you're reading, you'll get different answers to each of those questions. And so we'll read through it with some of those in mind, and I'll at least give you my thoughts on it um, as, we, uh, as we make our way through. But uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 is where this Jesus-Adam contrast really begins to take shape. Um, If you look at verse 11, we'll we'll start back at at that one. It says, uh, this is his final passage about who we boast or exalt in. And he says, but not only this, 
but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so I think this idea of reconciliation to God is what he's wanting to, to extrapolate on a little bit further. And when he thinks about it, he thinks of it in terms of a, of a cosmic reconciliation, uh, of, of the whole story of creation being told anew, only instead of a story of being separated from God, like what happened at Eden, it's a story of being joined back and reconciled to God so that we have peace with God. And that happened through Christ on the cross. And we have these, these, these people, Adam and Jesus, who are contrasted, but there's also these moments in their lives, these, these actions that they engaged in. One of them, which was the eating of the forbidden fruit, which brought sin and death, and the other one was the cross. And one of them came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other one came from the tree at Calvary, or the cross at Calvary. But you have these, these contrasting moments that have radically redefined our world, one for the bad and the other for the good, to bring about reconciliation. And so uh, after saying that we have this, this through Christ, there, uh, verse, 20, verse 12, Paul then wants to launch into that idea a little bit. <clears throat> verse 12, he says, so therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and that would be Adam, that, that's who we're talking about there. As through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that idea of the because all sinned, that takes you back to the first three chapters, where he's, he spent three chapters making that point. Gentiles have sinned, Jews have sinned, then chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's already, he's already proven that point, so now he's just using that point to make further points. But notice that phraseology right there, that death spread to all men because all sinned. This is a passage that in the history of Christianity has been used uh, as one to show that Adam's sin has spread to all mankind, uh, and it's generally passed on biologically. You're born with Adam's sin. Uh, you're either born with a, a tainted propensity towards sin, or you're born with actual guilt from Adam's sin, or you're born so totally depraved that you can't even... Uh, you can't even step towards God in faith in any way uh, unless God is the one who, who changes your heart through the Spirit and allows that to happen because you're part of his elect. Um, so there's, there's different—so one of those is like full-fledged uh, Calvinistic idea. That's the totally depraved idea. Um, even those who aren't Calvinists sometimes have the idea of, of guilt from the sin, and some have more the idea of, a, uh, of just a, a propensity towards sin. Uh, we live in a world where we're more likely to sin now, um, and whether that's an internal thing or very—I mean, it's obviously external also because the world has changed. I mean, it's— at the time in the Garden of Eden, uh, there wasn't a very large law that was given. You know, we, we, there, was, there was a law that God gave them, which was don't eat of this tree. Um, now, sin is something that is, you know, you could just build a wall around the tree and in essence not sin anymore, you know, if you, if you were back in Eden. Now we live in a world where sin is everywhere. Uh, and so the idea uh, could be that through Adam, the world in humanity so radically transformed that sin became something that we all, like Adam, have engaged in and got the ball roll. He got the ball rolling, and we've all given it a push along the way, uh, and it's gotten bigger and faster and more dangerous as humanity has gone along. Um, but one of the reasons—so so as you read it, 
You'll, you might find it odd because nothing in there actually says anything about Adam's sin spreading to us. Like if you read all the words of the verse, no, nothing says that. Uh, it does say death spread to all men. And then it has that phrase, because all sinned. And, and so you could easily read that and say, well, the reason that death spread is because all of us have sinned. So like that's, that's the logic of the verse. Um, one of the reasons this became a verse that... Uh, foundationally led to the idea of all human beings being born with Adam's sin is because there's a really, really famous and influential early church father from 4th and 5th century named Augustine. And uh, his writings, he's brilliant and has a lot of good writings. And they have been probably, if not the, very much among the most influential writings uh, of a Christian thinker ever. I mean, he's definitely in that argument. He's, he has radically influenced uh, Christian thought. But one of the things about Augustine is he did not know Greek, um, and the New Testament's written in Greek. He did, however, know Latin. And so just like we, you know, most of us don't know Greek, and so we read English, he didn't know Greek, and so he read a translation, which was Latin. And the Latin that he read had a mistranslation of this passage right here. Where our Bibles, most of them, I assume, if you're reading your Bible, it will say something at the end of verse 12 like, death spread to all men because all sinned, or inasmuch as all have sinned. Um, What his said is that death spread, talking about Adam, one man, er, sin entered the world through Adam, and death spread to all men, in whom all have sinned. Meaning, in Adam, all have sinned. And so he took that to me, and so in Adam, we have all somehow sinned, and so basically the sin of Adam, while it might have been a one-time action, it's an action that was, uh, that all of our sins and all of ourselves uh, ultimately stems from. And when he looked at his own life, um, you know, uh, Augustine talking about now, he's someone who lived a rather loose and immoral life for a large part of his life until he was uh, visiting uh, Ambrose, I believe it was, and he was in his, his courtyard, and he uh, tells the story of hearing uh, like, a, like a voice, maybe some kids playing or something, uh, to, to pick up and read, and he picked up his Bible, and he read it, and he opened up to the end of Romans 13, actually, and there was this call to repentance. Uh, it's kind of a famous passage uh, in um, Romans 13, where um, in verse, uh, verse 13, he says, uh, or I guess we can back up to verse uh, 12, but he says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Well, this moment when he read that passage, it was the first time it seemed in his life that he was actually able to make some of those changes that he had longed to make earlier and that he had seen in other people, like his own mother. And so he ends up making this change of life, but he realizes this, was, this didn't happen by my own power. This happened because of a conversion experience from something beyond me. And so he he developed this idea that basically we are enslaved to sin and to Adam's sin, and it's it's only God who has the power to to pull us up out of that. Well, that's not really what Romans 12 or Romans 5 uh, 12 is is saying. I've, you know, conversion experiences can be really powerful things, um, but I don't know that they. 
I think sometimes we could have a tendency to have a, an experience like that and then retroactively read it back into the Bible so that the Bible has to kind of match or fit what our experience was. And, uh, and I, I don't see anything in Romans 5, in this passage that we're reading through, that says Adam's sin spread to all humans or that says anything about what happens at birth. Like there's nothing in here about you're born sinful because of Adam. Like none of that's anywhere in this text. There is in this text the idea that sin entered into this world through Adam and because of Adam and the decision that he made, condemnation, sin, and death took over this world. Uh, yet what we see is through Jesus, you have the solution and the salvation to the problem that was started in Adam. So in Adam, you have sin enter in and it floods the whole thing because we all have contributed to it. But in Jesus, you have the remedy and the salvation through that sin. So uh, as you keep reading, uh, verses 13 and 14 are, are, Paul has said something that could cause confusion. And so I think he wants to clarify it a little bit. He had just mentioned that all have sinned and that that's happened from the time of Adam. Well, earlier in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, he, Paul wrote, uh, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, also there is no violation. So it's like you can't violate the law without a law. So now he gets to this point where he says, and all have sinned. And I think he has to clarify a little bit because well, what about the people from Adam to the giving of the law? If there was no law, did those people sin? And so he spends two verses clarifying, yes, they did sin. They didn't, they, they didn't sin uh, exactly as Adam did uh, because there, there wasn't a written law there. Uh, but they did uh, still, they, they did sin and, and death reigned uh, in their lives as well. Um, and so like in verse 13, he says, for until the law, which would be at Sinai, sin was in the world, not, uh, but sin was not imputed when there, where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So people who didn't sin against like a specific command given by God, but yet they still did sin by their disobedience to the very will of God. And he says uh, that Adam at the end of verse 14 is this type of he who was to come. But then when you get to verse 15, he starts talking more about the Adam-Jesus contrast and, and specifically the action of Jesus, which his, the action on the cross is what he's going to call the free gift. That's the salvation that we have in Christ through the cross. And he's going to compare the two. Verse 15 but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, that's Adam who brought death into the world and then many died from it. That's what happened with Adam. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So I'll tell you one other thing I don't, I don't really understand about this doctrine of, uh, of original sin as it sometimes is called. If you're reading these passages, you realize that, yes, Adam, Adam brought bad stuff into the world, and, and, and he brought sin, and he brought death into the world. And then everyone has, has experienced that pain and that agony and that failure uh, since that time. Yet, as you read through it, there is a solution, and the solution is Jesus. And so if Jesus has come, and we come to find out that, like, for example, in verse 15, much more did the grace of God 
you find out that the grace that we have in Christ is way bigger and way more than the sin and death that we had in Adam. It's like sin and death is a big deal, but even as bad as sin and death is, it pales in comparison to the overwhelming, magnificent grace that we have in God. So what I don't understand is if there is original sin, once someone has received forgiveness from Jesus, how they still are passing on sin to the, the children that come after them. You would think Jesus as the solution would have eradicated the problem of original sin. Uh, but that, that's not what Jesus did. Another thing that's interesting about that is uh, sometimes, because Romans 12 really doesn't say that, and so, so if you're going to look for passages that explicitly say something about children being born sinful. There aren't many you can go to. Uh, I don't think any of them really teach that. But you could perhaps go to something like Psalm 51, where David talks about, in sin did my mother conceive me, or some of our translations just say, I was sinful at birth. And, uh, and so you could say, okay, well, maybe that's, what, that's, that's where we get it from. Uh, one, I, I think that's another one of those ideas where a Christian doctrine that is developed a little bit later ends up getting retroactively read back into a poetic text to where we see something there that never would have been seen there before. In Psalm 51, David is lamenting his sin, and he's basically saying, I'm awful and I've always been awful, even from the day I was born. I was a terrible, no good person. Um, I could also show in, in Psalm 22, where David, in fact, I'll, I'll read it really quickly. In Psalm 22, David says almost the exact opposite um, when he says, yet you are the God who brought me forth from the womb and made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth and you have been my God from my mother's womb. You have this, this poetic description of the love and trust that David has had on God his whole life. And so you can say, well, which one of those do you take literally? And I'm like, well, I don't know if either of them are supposed to be taken as a as a doctrine that the church then, you know, applies from that point forward. Uh, one thing that's interesting is Jews who have Genesis in the Garden of Eden story. And by the way, there's nothing like that in the Garden of Eden story. Like nothing in the Garden of Eden story says that after Adam's sin, it's going to be passed on for everyone. And that's why Jews don't believe in original sin. Even though they have Psalm 51 and they have the Garden of Eden story and they have the whole story of Adam, they do believe that most humans, however, have become like little atoms themselves. There are even, uh, there, there are Jewish rabbis who have used that language. And I think that's a lot closer to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Adam started this thing, and then we all, like Adam, have contributed to the very types of sin, the, the, the very rebellion that he engaged in. So death, because of Adam, has spread to every one of us who, in Adam, have continued the sins of Adam. Um, yet, the solution to that and the salvation from that is found in our new Adam, who is Jesus himself, who on his tree, he brought about salvation and forgiveness. And so when you look, for example, at verse 17 uh, and following in Romans 5, he'll continue these contrasts between Adam and Jesus and the, the sin of Adam and the salvation of Jesus. In verse 17, he says, For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, that is, Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 18, another contrast. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation of all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, you can read that and you could say, okay, so all men became sinners because of Adam's one sin. 
Again, I think it's more Adam opened up the door and we all, because that door was open, have walked through it. Uh, And so it was that one sin that opened up the door. But I, I guess you have to think of it the same way. The contrast is with Jesus. If he uses the word all men to talk about those who have suffered condemnation because of Adam, he uses that same word all men or all humanity to talk about those who have been justified because of Christ. But just like with Christ, you have to share in the faithfulness of Christ to share that justification. So it's true with Adam. You have to share in the sinfulness of Adam in order to receive that condemnation. Uh, there is, there's, there's a step there where it's not because Adam came, therefore everyone is born with Adam's sin, but then Jesus came, so now everyone's born with Jesus' justification. If you're going to say one, you would have to say the other based on the way that it's it's worded, but that's not actually what he's saying. Uh, That's, again, I think that's just a misreading of the text. I do think what he's saying, and the point isn't so much about origin of sin, it's reality of sin. The reality of sin came into being through Adam, and we've all suffered from it and we've all engaged in it, and we've all been enslaved by it. Yet there is hope and there is solution because someone even greater than Adam has come, and an act even more powerful than the sin in the Garden of Eden took place on the Calvary's cross. So the salvation, which can overwhelm the sin of Adam, has come so that all men can receive justification as well. So verse 19 through 21 for as though one man's disobedience, as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's the, again that idea of like, so the more laws there are, the more opportunity there is for sin. Laws are good. Like that, I mean, they, they are good. Paul will say that clearly. Law, the law is good. Laws are good. But the flip side of law is the more there is, the more chance there is for sin. So the more laws you have, the more sin there is. Yet with sin, the God that we serve, he has so much grace that the more sin there is, the more grace he bestows. And so law brought about sin, which brought about God's grace, so that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we're not going to get into it now, but you may hear that logic and think, wait a minute. Sin brings grace. More sin brings more grace. We should just sin, right? <laughs> like, that way we get more grace. That's, Paul actually, look at chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely no. You know, that's, that he gives a very emphatic no, and then he'll describe. That would be like staying in Egyptian slavery. That would be like staying in slavery to sin instead of pressing on to the life that God has for you. Instead of leaving that world behind and becoming a new man and a new life. Uh, and that's where he, he moves into that. So when we look at what Jesus did for us, we have a new Garden of Eden story. Our story isn't Adam anymore. To those who are in Christ, Jesus is our new Adam. And he didn't bring sin and death. He brought reconciliation, justification, forgiveness, and salvation. And so when we look at our state now, and we look at our world now, there's some really important things to know. As a matter of fact, just by looking at the word now, beginning in chapter 5, you see some beautiful things about what the world is like now to those who are in Christ. Uh, Look with me, and we'll close the lesson by doing this. But look with me at Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. 
Verse 8 says, while we were, past tense, sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. So now we have justification. When you look at verse 11, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So now with our new Adam, we have justification, we have reconciliation. When you look at chapter 6 and you look at verse 19, if you look at the second half of that verse, there's this call to now present your members or your bodies, the parts of your bodies, as slaves to righteousness resulting in justification. So now there's a new way to live, but it results in sanctification. Verse 22 of chapter 6, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive the benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So now there is freedom from sin, sanctification, and eternal life. Chapter 7 and verse 6, but now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the law. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 17, now this one, take, it's, it's the beginning of a lengthier argument, so I'll just quickly say things, but uh, verse 17 says, but now it is no longer I who am the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. And this is where he's talking about the fact that so often he's not the person that he wants to be and that he knows is good because his spirit wants to be that person, but his flesh so often fails. And so he says, but now it's not me, it's the sin that's ruling in my life that's doing it. But you eventually get to uh, verse 24 and 25, where we find out that we give thanks to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord now, because he's the one who sets us free from the body of sin and death. Because chapter eight, verse one, and we'll end on this one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So you're justified, you're sanctified, there's eternal life, you're reconciled, you are set free from the law, and there is no condemnation because our new Adam didn't bring sin and condemnation to us. He brought salvation, reconciliation, and hope of eternal life. And that's something that is available for each and every one of us here, and that's something that is available until the Lord comes again. And if you want to take advantage of the hope that we have through our new Adam, please let that be known. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life and have your sins washed away in baptism. Please come and sit on the front row while we stand and sing.